expressed in this podcast did not necessarily reflect the view of Wolfpack Research or any of its officers. The views and opinions expressed by guests are their own and their appearance on this program does not imply an endorsement of them or any entity they represent. We are not investment advisors. We hold no registrations with the SEC, FINRA, or any other regulatory agency, and none of the opinions expressed on this podcast should be considered investment advice. The listener should assume that we have positions in and stand to benefit from any stock or other security mentioned on this podcast. Do your own research before making investment decisions. Right, folks, welcome to the Wolf Den. This is Dan David coming back at you with the Wolf Pack. By that, I mean Sound Carl with his moniker, Sound Carl. That's right, patent pending. Yeah, patent pending. Okay. I'm not sure there's going to be competition for that. <laughs> and then we have Sound Andrew, just because I know that annoys Carl. Yeah, yeah. No uh, Sound Andrew. There we go. And Andrew's going to handle, handle the sound. We have today a really interesting, diverse guest, Lars Emmerich a best-selling author of the Sam Jameson and Peter Kittredge conspiracy thriller series read over by a million thriller fans. Lars is an entrepreneur, and we're going to talk a lot about this. He's an investor in Bitcoin, a Bitcoin miner, and we're going to talk a bit about this, a retired F-16 pilot who writes about good guys with a bad streak and bad guys with a few redeeming qualities. That sounds Exactly like our show, yes, except, yes. <laughs> except it's all bad streak and no redeeming qualities. Which one are the good guys? Point them out. There are no good guys. Yeah, in there this. are no good guys in this movie, <laughs> <laughs> including me. In 1994, distinguished graduate of the U.S. Air Force Academy, a Hertz Fellow, and a two-time recipient of the Distinguished Flying Cross Medal of Valor in Combat. Lars brings a unique perspective to any discussion about literature, economics and geopolitics. Well, hell yeah, man. <laughs> he shot some Thank mofos you. down. Yeah. Welcome to the show, Lars. Thank you. Pleasure to be here. I appreciate it. Where, where do we get started? Let's get started chronologically. I am Lars, and I've, although Lars is a gnome de guerre, this is your pen name, you all have to do your homework to find out his real name. You know, he's got a double O status. That's right. We don't give it away. We don't just give it away. Double O zero. That's yeah. me. Yeah. It's double O, double o zero. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That makes total sense. I like it. <laughs> Zed. Zed. Double O Zed. That's right. For, for our across the pond friends. Right. Yeah. I just had a Zed. That's I? right. Yeah. That's right. That's in the can. Zed's dead. Z- Zed's dead. That's right. Zed's dead. At the Air Force Academy, you always knew you wanted to be a pilot. How'd you figure out that that's what you wanted to do? You know what? I, um, I was at an air show when I was maybe 10 or 11. They were opening up the airport out here, Denver, Colorado. Oh, cool. And uh, so I grew up here, went down the street to the academy for school, went all over the world for 20 years, and then, and then retired back here. Because it turns out this place, I didn't notice it when I was growing up here, but Colorado's pretty freaking awesome. It is. But I was at an air show when I was maybe 10, 11, 12, and there's this part of the Thunderbirds show where... You know, the, the formation goes slowly across in front of you and you're watching them and one of the solos is sneaking up behind you and he just tears over your head at, you know, Mach 0.9. It's just got me in my chest and tears rolled down my eyes. It was just the most beautiful and powerful experience. But I had sort of put that away for a while. I wasn't leaning anything toward the military until my senior year in high school when I got a phone call from uh, one of the football coaches at the Air Force Academy, and they said, hey, we'd like you to come down for a recruiting visit. Suddenly, I was keenly interested in yeah. the U.S. Air Force Academy, right? Oh, yeah. After my first season on the team, they, uh, Fisher DeBerry was the coach. He's a real colorful Southern gentleman. Sit us down, have a talk. And he sat me down and had a talk, and he was like, son, if you're going to be that small, you got to be faster. Oh, yeah. <laughs> you got to go do something else. I've been on the other end of that conversation before. It's kind of soul crushing when that's supposed to yeah. be your career, right? I mean, mm. I never had any, you know, I, I was a small kid. I, I just. You don't look small now. You look built like uh, you've, you've been doing some work. Thank you. I, um, I, I do my pushups and sit-ups for sure. Yeah, I guess. <laughs> but at the time, puberty hadn't quite fully set in. I was a late bloomer. So ah. at the time I was trying to play division one at like 170 pounds or something. And You decided that you had good eyesight, so. There you go. You got to be like 2020 to fly, right? Or at least 2010, 2020? Yeah, I think it's 2020. I, I had like 2012 vision. I, I was really oh. lucky that way. I was really good at baseball for the same reason. I yeah. could always see the way the, the ball was spinning. And, and so I had a 
really high batting average just because I could see better than most folks. And so that really helped me out. We got a guy in the Wolfpack that uh, Reed Sherman, who has 2010 vision. And uh, he credits that with his playing Division One ball as well. Yeah. That he could actually see the stitches on the ball while it was in the air. Yep. And I'm just like, dude, I, could, I was lucky to see the ball when it hit the catcher's mitt. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I saw when the catcher was holding it up, waving yeah. it at me. I, yeah. thought it was, I saw the stitches on the ball when the catcher was throwing it back to the pitcher. That's right, yeah. You decide that you uh, want to go into flight school, which has got to be grueling. It's got to be tough. It's just as much schoolwork as it is training, right? It is, yeah. And at the time, there weren't that many pilot training slots, so we were competing for them. The academy is a fairly tough school academically, and um, yeah, only like the top X percent were were receiving pilot training slots at the time. And among those, not many people were landing in fighters, which is where most of us wanted to go. So, right, I, somebody's got to fly of... the cargo plane, Lars. <laughs> That's right. Somebody's got to do true. it, but it wasn't going to be you. It might have been me, but I was really hoping that it wasn't. I was really excited about flying the pointy, the pointy jets. And so happily, it, I, I did. You know, there's a lot of homework. There's a lot of studying uh, involved, both at graduating from college at a place like that and also from flight school. But I also was a beneficiary of a good bit of luck as well. So it, all, it happened to work out for me, and I found myself flying F-16s. Are you a beneficiary of a good bit of luck? You flew fighter jets in combat, and you're here today. I'm going to agree with you. That's luck, yeah. That's <laughs> so, luck. Well, a lot of, most of it's skill, but there are bombs going at, missiles flying at you at, at time. Yeah, so yeah. That's, that's more than we deal with, and we deal with a bit. What was your uh, call sign? We've got to be careful how I say this here. <laughs> no, you know, this is an R-rated show. Yeah, yeah. You say whatever you want. <laughs> <laughs> they called me Rowdy. R-O-W-D-Y. There's some episode alleging some furniture that might have been liberated from the sixth floor window of the dorms uh-huh. at the fire squadron. <laughs> Allegedly. Right. And on account of a calm disposition in my younger day, that's, that's what they called me. And it stuck you know, throughout. The, they're a worse call sign. Yeah. Certainly worse call sign. What was the worst call sign? One dude is uh, like shag for social hand grenade. One is uh, one is Kelvin for absolute zero. Um, there's a bunch of if, if they don't like you, you know, you'll carry around a, a crappy call sign. You don't for get years to pick your own, right? You don't get to pick your own. No. Wow. In fact, if you try, you'll they'll punish you. There's like somebody that gets stuck with the call sign fuck stick, and they put it on his helmet or something. It's not quite that overt. Uh, okay. But, All right. Well, there. but just one level below that, yeah. I think absolute zero was probably yeah, not, not a was, good one. Kelvin was uh, <laughs> yeah. he was usually yeah. there for target practice. Do you get one right away? No, it's when you're in your first operational squadron. So I think by that time it's probably two years, maybe more, after you started your formal pilot training program. So the first one is just learning how to fly and trainers, at the end of which you get your wings and an assignment to go fly an operational airplane of some sort. From AWACS, E3 to tankers, flying gas stations, uh, yeah, cargo yeah. jets, fighters, bombers. And, uh, you know, increasingly people went to go fly drones right out of pilot training. Really? Yeah, that's a bit of a bait and switch where you strap into an airplane for all the pilot training and they go, Congratulations, you can, you no longer need to take your helmet out to the airplane, but in your helmet bag, you can put your Snickers bars on the way to the, on the uh, way to the, the Barco lounger for drones. Yeah. So dude. that was. Notionally, I knew they were pilots, but I mean, really, I just saw them as gamers. Yeah, it seems so video. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, yeah. Do they get teased about like you know being a gamer instead of a pilot? Or I imagine you guys are ruthless. All the things for sure, and it it sucks too because the more we sort of learned about this, I mean, these guys are it's high stress. Guys yeah, very high stress, and one of the biggest causes of this kind of stress is guilt. You're controlling an, an airplane on the other side of the world while you're sitting here a few miles away from your home. So there's no personal risk and yet you're, you're killing people. So this, and we even felt some of that flying jets, you know, we, right. we had an advantage. Like we could, sometimes there were very, very close calls, but we could usually maneuver around and, and away from whoever was shooting at us. And it was still didn't feel like a fair fight when we were dropping bombs on folks, but there's absolutely not, there's, there's an, a huge imbalance in personal risk involved when you're sitting, you know, in a ground control unit someplace and controlling stuff happening overseas. There, there's a high incidence rate of PTSD mm-hmm. from that. 
yeah. because you feel like it, at least when people were shooting at me, like that was, I felt alive and in it. And it wasn't, uh, it wasn't like I was picking on the sisters of the poor, right? When, right. when things were happening, people were shooting AAA and you could see sometimes uh, a missile would explode nearby. And in the light of the explosion, we flew a lot at night in the light of the explosion, you could see the metal shrapnel ex- expanding out in this, I mean, really beautiful, but also quite scary. Terrifying if you're in it. It, it was certainly, uh, certainly for me, the first few times you get used to it like anything else, but there is some personal risk and even something like if there's a, in the F-16, we have one engine, and if that happened to fail over political borders, you could be in a world of hurt. Like you could right. be, even something like that puts you in some bit of risk where it's not the case for folks who are, who are flying autonomous vehicles. Yeah, or 14, which is, you know, dual engine, but third generation, right? An F-14, not fourth? Yeah, that's pretty old. It's a pretty old jet. They put some new engines in it. In the Air Force, that era, I think one generation beyond. Tomcat is probably still a fourth-gen fighter. Ooh, with barely. Very barely. Yeah. With upgraded avionics. Yeah. Fourth-gen, we think of F-15, F-16, like A-10. Yeah. Fifth generation, we think of F-35 and F-22. The F-14 was a badass. Uh, don't, don't get me wrong. It screwed Gaddafi up the first time just fine, but... It stands no chance against a fifth-generation fighter. Is that fairly accurate? Yeah, it's fairly accurate. The Tomcat wasn't designed to be skinny from a radar perspective. Mm-hmm. So you see that thing. It's like a flying barn from a radar cross-section perspective. There's certain <laughs> tricks you can play aftermarket if you want to think about it that way. But the fifth-gen airplanes were they were designed from the ground up to be harder to target. So, so Maverick would not have been able to shoot down six planes at the end of that movie. That would have been a good day at the office, for sure. No, he shot down two planes, okay. but, but he had three from the first movie, so that made him a flying ace. They made an ace, yeah. Were, were there any aces? I mean, when did you start in the military? When did you start flying? Started flying in 1994. Were there any aces when you flew? There's just not any dogfighting anymore. No, there's not. There really isn't. There's only a handful of guys who have even one, one kill, and uh, one of those came from... Serbia. Actually, uh, he was a, uh, an instructor of mine while I was in basic pilot training. He went back out to the F-15. I went to the F-16 for my assignment. We were both in the Kosovo conflict, and they had a, one or two MiG-29s that would take off. I forgot the city. You know, they'd do a couple of loops and then, you know, a couple of turns and then go land. Well, in the middle of one of these turns, a guy got a little bit too far south of the airfield and got himself shot down by, by this guy, Claw, my uh, IP from pilot training claw a, his name was claw yeah all right yep. i'll take it I'll yeah, take yeah. That one. but that was it that was like a one-off event there may be one or two other ones that had happened at the t- time i was at the academy there's a guy named uh steve ritchie who was a vietnam ace and he i don't know if he had retired already as a brigadier general but he was making the speaking rounds you know and he would come and tell you how great he was and all the things that he did to well he's flying an f4 war. That Doing fan F4s, yeah. yeah so i mean who who's he fighting who's he shooting down <laughs> was it was it the russians i think there's some speculation along those lines they certainly were helping they certainly were sending hardware oh sure I mean, it, was a, it was a proxy war but i think it was also a good bit were were north vietnamese pilots really well that was a mistake on their part i mean they were <laughs> They were killing us from the tunnels, and uh, and that worked. Yeah, I mean, air superiority just really hasn't been challenged for us since no World War II, really. No, and you know we've discovered, I think, that it's not the the end all be all. It's um, it's necessary but not sufficient. You know, we, we've we've floundered in Iraq and Afghanistan, uh, trying to exert our will on the townsfolk for the entire country, and that's really hard to do. Armies are not nation-building apparatuses. Right. They are, they are <laughs> yeah. nation-destroying. That's what they're for. They are, they're, they are for yeah. beating other armies. And like when you were talking about some of the, the pilots, the drone pilots, how they feel in yourself, you feel like, okay, I, you know, I still have a pretty unfair advantage. In war, the last thing you want is an even fight. That's right. Yeah. You want an overwhelming unfair advantage. And I think we do in the sky... And I think we do on the ground. I think it's just, you know, when we're there to clean things up, that's when things go bad. This whole Marshall Plan worked in Europe for a reason. It doesn't work in the Middle East for many other reasons. 
I think the main reason it worked in Europe is that Europe was one big pile of rubble at the end of World War II. I don't know if there were two stones stacked on top of each other in the whole place after that. So any amount of effort that we could expend to put it back together, I think, went a long way. I think there were so many people involved in the war at the civilian level. I mean, civilian populations were targeted strategically. We were bombing the living daylights. Yeah, both sides. We're bombing the living daylights out of them. So... There was a lot to clean up, and the population was really, really beat up, really beat up. And culturally more in line with each other. I could make the case that Afghanistan was a pile of rubble before he dropped one bomb. <laughs> Which begs the question, why are we dropping bombs on mud huts, right? Because what are you going to build back up, and then we're going to build back up? <laughs> exactly. I'll dig you a new cave. I mean, what? <laughs> It just didn't make sense. You go in there, you know, with a, to a scalpel as the military can be, which they're really more of a broadsword, and you take out Osama bin Laden and, and that element, and you leave. It's that whole idea of we're going to fix it over there so they don't, you know, come get us. That doesn't work. You go over there, yeah, not at all. you take care of the problem, and if it becomes a problem again, you take care of it again. And that's a lot cheaper than staying there for 20 years, nation building. Yeah, I think we have in our mind, uh, because of our sign of some. Like every nation, every group has a, a kind of mythology around it. I think our mythology, certainly in the West, definitely in the United States, is that as soon as anybody gets any taste of democracy, the gates open up, it's all rainbows and unicorns, confetti, nothing but happiness, but it, it doesn't really They just want a better dictator. They want, they want the dictator they like. I've said that on my show many, many times. You can't give democracy away. When you go in yeah. and just to hand it to somebody, uh, you know, or a nation that is steeped in hundreds, if not thousands of years in authoritarian leadership, they're just like, what's this? We just wanted a better dictator. Yeah. You know, one of the reasons it doesn't work the same way as it worked in Europe, but I guess that just really wasn't your job at all. They just put you in a plane and said, you know, go bomb this. I mean, we had been flying uh, patrol sorties over northern and southern Iraq since 1990 or 91. That was pretty continuous. And then in, I was there in 2003 when we uh, did Gulf War II. We called it Operation Iraqi Freedom. Uh-huh, and, yeah. and like we really thought that we were going here to, to set these people free from an oppressive regime. In retrospect, looking at the complete shit show that, that is, it, it had been every moment since then, those things that we, I think, maybe should have learned from Vietnam and should have learned from the Soviets in Afghanistan and might should have learned from some of our Central and South American adventures in a number of uh, similar operations that were equally disastrous, but somehow still covert, <laughs> right. uh, might should have drawn the connection. But I think what we did in those particular cases is we found very specific reasons why we, oh, we failed in Vietnam because of, um, oh, we weren't willing to go total war, or it was because of the tunnels. If it weren't for the tunnels, or the Ho Chi Minh Trail, you know, the jungle, we would find these little proximate tactical reasons. But I think staring us in the face was this big giant truth, which is it's just really difficult to get people to think and behave differently than they have done, certainly for their whole lives and maybe for many generations before them. Um, Bush one had it right. They really wanted him to invade Iraq after he liberated Kuwait. And he's like, I don't want to own that. (laughs) And he had no charisma, but he had brains. He was was a very smart guy. His son had all the charisma and no brains. You put the two of them together, we'd had a great president. We'd had something. The son was just like, ah, oh, they tried to kill my dad. Something like that, yeah. And Dicky Boy says we ought to go, you know, do this. Oh my gosh. <laughs> Did you guys see the uh, the movie The Vice? Of course. About, about Cheney, yeah. Yeah. That's yeah. interesting. He is Darth Vader. He, isn't he? He's like, a, he's a Sith Lord for sure. In, no doubt. In real life. They're just artificial the, hearts and instead of a mask, like helping him breathe, he's got like a mechanical iron lung inside of his chest pumping it's away. Because he had no heart to begin with. It's just like, you know, <laughs> That's right. I don't know how people knew it stopped. I don't know when it started. <laughs> but yeah. but uh, it, it, he didn't seem like his pulse ever got over like, you know, 80. So I don't yeah. know how he had any heart problems because, you know, whatever. I'll just find another way to go to war. He's just like, he's going to do it. And he gets his, yeah. his buddy Rummy. Uh, Rumsfeld, and oh, uh, great sound bites, right? Oh, he was amazing. He was like when they were asking him about why he uses daisy, daisy cutters they <laughs> because they kill people, and that's why mm-hmm. we're there to kill people. <laughs> okay, next question. Yeah, yeah. You know, Bush one had it right. We just we have an objective. We go fill that objective. 
maybe one thing he got wrong is leaving a presence in Saudi Arabia. The Middle East is always going to see his crusaders, you know, staying here or whatever. You didn't have it wrong. And, you know, you, you've always had the right intentions, our, our military and the people risking their lives. And I imagine it's got to be conflicting to drop bombs, right? On one level, you want to execute your job. You want to be the best at your job. And uh, on another level, you probably know somebody's going to die. Yeah. And even worse for the drone operators, because they see them die. Ah, uh, yeah, the camera. Yeah. Right. We're on our way in a lot of ways to, uh, to destroying ourselves. But the one thing that we still, everybody agrees on is we have the best military in the world, uh, bar none. You could ask Russia that today. I wonder what they would say. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think they're, they're walking around with quite the same swagger they were uh, a year ago. I think they're crawling wherever they go. Yeah. <laughs> like you're taught to do when you're under fire. <laughs> That's right, yeah. It is not as easy as it looks to knock over somebody else's country. No. It's, just, it's not that easy. In some ways, Putin fell for the same kind of rhetoric that Bush did, that people were going to be greeting them with flowers and... Yeah as liberators, and that just did not, not happen. So not so much. What do you think about what's going on there right now? And were you just astounded that they could not take a control of the skies immediately? I think their air forces have been in basically a sustained decline since the fall of the Soviet Union. I think they're still doing some interesting and innovative things. I think they're not doing it at a scale that makes them quite as relevant. The big dog over in that part of the world yeah, is it's China. About, it's China, without a doubt. Uh, all of all of the stuff that we think about, Vladimir, he's an interesting and colorful character, and what he's doing in Ukraine, I think, is is um, he's a terrible it's, strategist. It's terrible. Yeah, it's just tragic and uh, absolutely. I don't know what he thinks he'll be gaining from it. Relevance, possibly. I I think it's a real thing when you have taken out. Everybody who has anything slightly negative to say about you or what you're doing, uh-huh. you insulate yourself from facts. Yeah. And so you can go on these. I can't wait delusional, to do that. <laughs> I know, right? Yeah. You go on these delusional, months long kind of ex- mental excursions where you start drinking your own bathwater and believing your own propaganda. And pretty soon you're waltzing into somebody else's country thinking they're all going to kneel before you or, or give you a big, a big hug and a kiss on the cheek. And they're not. You've been delusional this whole time because you've built yourself the tiniest echo chamber in the world, right? (laughs) It's only between your ears. He's as dangerous as anybody else out there with the nuclear weapons. I mean, of course, I've said many times, I'll say it again, you know, Russia ends up being a vassal state to China with what they owe them and what they're continuing to borrow from them. And China's a long-term strategist player. Yeah. I always thought Putin was a pretty good tactician, the way he handled Georgia, and you get a little bit, and you get a little bit. The, in 2014, you know, tactically, you can go in there, but I always thought he's a terrible long-term strategist, and now he's bad at both. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> because when, I was, when I'm talking to you about, you know, are, are you surprised they didn't take control of the air, and you're, you're kind of like, well, you know, the Air Force maybe isn't what we thought it was. Hey, man, I'm talking about Ukraine. They couldn't take over the air in Ukraine. Well, I think they couldn't. Uh, they couldn't take over the airport. Like they couldn't they overrun can't clear the, the skies. Ukraine's still flying jets. Vladimir's offensive, I think, is stalled. I mean, he's very much trying to just keep a foothold in in hostile territory, and people are taking pot shots at him. All how the long time. were people flying? Uh, how long were armies flying planes against the United States and any of the conflicts that we've started or been involved in in the past thirty years? Within three days, nobody else is flying a plane. Nobody's flying in Iraq in two thousand and three. They buried their aircraft under dirt. <laughs> yeah. They buried their own jets. They Those... flew a couple of them. And I think that was after having watched Serbia lamely fly a couple around and get a couple of them shot down. And then, and then I think Serbia gave up. But I, I don't think anybody has really tried, tried to contest the U.S. air presence. Now, I do think that's likely to be a drastically different scenario if the anybody ever picks sea. a fight yeah. with China. Well, yeah, they had a, a <laughs> stealth all... fighters parked on the uh, runway when Obama visited. Well, they have whatever they stole well, from us on their <laughs> runway. They and, do. Uh, yeah, they do. And, they have and, a uh, very effective industrial espionage program. Don't very, we they're... know it, pal? <laughs> don't we know it? We report on it all the time, and yeah. everybody's just like, yeah, man, they got to stop doing that. And that's it. <laughs> no, they don't. That is the strategy, you know. Of- you know, that's, that's how the United States became an industrial superpower. We just stole all the European stuff back in the day. And, and Wait a minute, that's a totally yeah, different yeah, thing. Yeah, yeah, that's yeah, us. Yeah, yeah. 
<laughs> exactly. That was then. This is now. <laughs> That's, I mean, it's completely fine if we do it. Yeah, obviously. We were doing it for the That's right, right. reason. Moral. We had the moral high ground in that theft. I think what, what's amazing about, like, you know, what China has done over the last, I could, I could make a case for more than 20 years, but really ramped it up in the last 20 years, is that the civilian population is calling it out left and right. I mean, it's not even top military leaders that are finding these forced technology transfers with companies where you buy a minority stake, you know, for whatever, and then you take all their technology and you're gone. Or if you're going to sell products here in China, you've got to bring all your technology with you. What do we think was going to happen? I mean, we knew, and we're filing all these suits about it. And of course, you can't get a fair shake in China's court, still not doing anything what they're doing in the universities, right? So our university professors are really, over the last 20 years, have looked at it like this. Like, kids come here in college and tell me to go F myself. They don't have to come to class. They're adults now, blah, blah, blah. Foreign students like Chinese students come here and treat me like LeBron James. Yeah. They treat me like an intellectual should be treated. And yeah, of course they're flattered. You know, and of course they see their culture is better than ours because our kids treat them like shit. Why is it super relevant? Well, we've outsourced dirty and hard jobs over there. And so in the course of that, we did that because we were greedy. We wanted, we wanted stock prices to go up. We wanted excess free cash flow. There's nothing wrong with those things to places where- We could outsource where, our morals too. You know, other countries are just learning. Oh, you can't pollute until the cows come home. And, you know, people start just keeling over dead from pollution. China cannot be smart and stupid in the same conversation. It's a ridiculous thing that they're still considered third world status by the World Bank. They get subsidized yeah. discounts that we pay for. Meanwhile, they're way ahead of us economically in some ways. I think certainly and temporarily because well, hopefully I, think, temporarily. I don't think that anybody over there is stupid. I think they have, oh, they knew they had a window mm -hmm. yeah. where they could, they could exploit. Getting a really terrible tech manufacturing job in China is still an amazing benefit coming from where you were before. <laughs> like you're eating yeah. twigs and chasing yeah. grasshoppers to eat, like life was really terrible for a lot of those folks. And so moving into these crappy jobs was a real move up for a lot of folks. And so people in China knew that that would, that would have a draw. They, they really are improving their economic and, and social status. But it also, it's a foot in the door toward more humane treatment, number one. And number two, I think they knew they were on borrowed time in terms of just the costs of industrialization, pollution, like, it really is a big deal if you can't drink your water or breathe the air. It's quite telling in the, when Beijing had the Olympics, they shut down manufacturing for X days before. Because of the smog. So, I mean, they, they knew they had a window to exploit. And I think now they're getting to the end of that window and they're having to do different things. And so now their manufacturing is, is going to be, I think, a lot less inexpensive, a lot less attractive as they start to have to manage those problems of industrialization at scale. I don't think it's that they, they were short-sighted. I think they're just out of runway where that's concerned, and they're going to have to start paying real attention to those kinds of issues. Well, good luck with that outlook. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. We've been in China for the last 15 years, and you know that's where we do our work. And mm. in a lot of ways, what you've explained is, is happening, right? But it's also getting much more authoritarian. It's Certainly. a complete surveillance state at this point, yeah. and so is Hong Absolutely. Kong. I don't think they're going to lax rules on rare earths to continue to corner that market for whatever time it takes, five or 10 years or 20 years. They don't care who they poison because that's what they have cornered and where yeah, we're all way behind. I can see that for sure. I can I mean, see we that have for rare sure. earths here. You know, we have them in our backyard. They're just very toxic to mine. As you said, rightly so, we, we have standards where we're not going to poison our people to do it. So it's going to be more expensive. But this conflict is just beginning, not just ending in a lot of ways. I think you're definitely right in that, in that regard. I didn't mean to suggest that, you know, all of our China concerns are over. They're definitely not. <laughs> I think it's just going to be, it's going to be less it's an obvious economic move to offshore a bunch of your stuff. I think it's more politically difficult now. Not that it ever was all that easy, but. Everybody's going to Vietnam. Isn't that ironic? They love us now. That is ironic. Vietnam. Looks like China did 20 years ago, where really? if you show up uh, one day and go back two months later, there are new buildings, new factories. Wow. They're very much trying to fill a vacuum there. And these are rough people. 
you don't want to screw with the Vietnamese either, as we learned. <laughs> and as China learned, China invaded Vietnam for a minute and got their ass waxed. So really, back in 79, 78, something like that, they, they kind of crossed the border and had a clash too. And oh, wow. I mean, these people, they will fight and they're yes. industrious. So yeah. And I wonder how our fifth generation fighters are going to fare in a situation like that. It's, uh, it's hard to know for sure. Um, and well, I'm asking you a pilot, so. <laughs> there's a thing that, uh, that happened when, before the wall fell, you know, the, the Russian threat was, this, the Soviet threat was this 10-foot-tall juggernaut. And then when the wall came down, we learned more about the, the stuff they had, and we went, oh, well, this is not that great. I don't know why we were so scared of this. So we haven't had any kind of watershed intel moment like that with China, where all the stuff we think they have that we think works in a certain way, we're able to really, you know, pour over it and reverse engineer it and figure things out. But I will say that the way it looks right now is it's not a fight you want to pick. It's not a fight you no. want to, you don't want to go take a swing at China because there's, we think, a lot of really cool hardware that will make life really tough for anybody trying to fly and all the way out well well into the sea right i'm not just talking mainland here because they can take out a carrier named admirals pretty much shrug their shoulders and be like yeah enough of those df-21s or whatever they're going to take out a carrier and that's five yeah. six seven thousand soldiers dead yeah then it's going to be a big situation i was just hoping we we're a little better on the f-35 kind of the drone group that would follow i was hoping we we're a little more advanced on how that one plane can manage 10 drones or something of that effect. Yeah. I guess we're keeping that close to the vest too. We are. By the time I retired, that was very much a PowerPoint kind of idea. And so I didn't retire long enough ago, I don't think, to, for yeah. it to be a day-to-day -day reality now. Although sometimes things happen, happen shockingly quickly. We'll see. Well, yeah. hopefully we won't see in the context of a, of a fight with China. I think one thing that might be helping is there's renewed interest. I think Intel is leading this charge to open chip foundries onshore here in the U.S. If we can get that done at scale, that makes Taiwan a lot less relevant. I would not even mind from a strategic standpoint if this was something that the government really wanted to subsidize because it really is a, oh, like a global well, security well, type issue and continue to. Yeah. You remember that Center for Security and International Studies, the big thing that was the discussion in the think tank after the debate on, on Huawei, which why would you ever debate Huawei? <laughs> Stupid. They shouldn't be here. <laughs> yeah. We're reasonably far ahead of them in chip technology, if one of the only things we are ahead of them on. But if they had Taiwan Semiconductor tomorrow, that's gone. It's over. It looks more and more like uh, Taiwan's up for grabs for them. And I take it from this conversation with you, you're not looking for the United States to uh, fight over Taiwan. I don't know that it's a fight we can choose to stay out of if and when it kicks off. Ooh, I hope we can. I really don't think it's one that we want to we want to pick. Yeah, I really don't want to be in a fight over Taiwan. That is just fighting China in their backyard and ugh. It would be extremely difficult to do. So you're done being a, a stud F eighteen pilot. F sixteen. Oh F sixteen. There's no stud F eighteen pilots just oh, for the record. Oh, oh. <laughs> not even a super I'm hornet. Kidding. I'm just kidding. So you like the 16 better than the 18 just because you flew it? The Super Hornet's not a bad. No, it's a great airplane. In fact, um, the F-18, the world's best F-18 pilot will beat the world's best F-16 pilot in a BFM engagement, a one-on-one. -on -one. And the reason I think that is because the F-18, the flight control system allows you to have way more angle of attack. And the F-16 is unstable at high angles of attack. So... You just physically can't move the nose around to the same extent. Now, there's a lot of F-18 pilots, just like there's a lot of F-16 pilots who aren't the world's best at it. And so you don't often see those hardware differences come out. Usually, in it, when it's a scenario like that, it really is down to the experience of the, of the pilot. But I think the best, and then this is in a very limited scenario, this is like a dogfighting scenario, which, like we've discussed, happens never <laughs> in the real world these days. Except in Top Gun. And by the way, that, the that was a theme in Top Gun, too. It's all down to the pilot. Did you see it? Did you see the new Maverick movie? No, I haven't. I haven't. Uh, you're I just one of those to. guys, right? You're just like, oh, screw this stuff, man. It's not real. A couple interesting, relatively interesting things, maybe. But I, I watched it a lot in high school. And Oh, you and what, the we first had, one? Yep, the first one. Yeah. Well, and the, we second all one, the second one, I have mixed feelings about because 
I miss it sometimes. I miss uh, flying a jet. I yeah. got you. And so um, yeah. actually, I went to I, my daughter and I went on a date. We were seeing a movie, and we got to the theater a little bit early. And in an adjacent theater was the Maverick movie playing. So I snuck in and stood on the wall for a minute. And it was in the middle of a of a dog fighting scene, and it was really well done. It looked like dog fighting looks. And I got misty eyed, man. I got a little, I got teary eyed and, and, uh, man up, bro. I just <laughs> missed it. Get I just there, missed flying the jet. I don't want to ruin it for you, but they're fighting with F 16s. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, yeah, I mean, cool. the, you had to know the military was not going to let them go play with F 22s and F 35s. So they had to find yeah. a story where the sure. F 16s could, you know, take out a fifth generation Russian fighter. That would be great for you, I would think. And, you know, they had the two seater and the one seater, right? No, they do have some two-seat F-16s. They're basically for training purposes. There's yeah. some things that you do, when you're, especially when you're beginning to fly the airplane. You need somebody in the back seat to tell well, you when you're about to kill yourself. Maybe they were using F-18s. Maybe they were F-18s they were using rather than, but still. Yeah, I'm not sure. I haven't seen it. It's a weapon system evaluation program down over the, the water in Florida where we go shoot air-to-air missiles. And it used to be the drones that got shot down by the air-to-air missiles were old F-4s. But, <laughs> but now... Yeah, it has been for a while. They're F-16s. No, you know, no. So they're, they're wow. shooting down my baby oh. now, right? Oh it's, uh, my god, it's a hard it's thing. Right. Well, there's an F-14 that shows up in this movie too. Oh, there has to be. You know, there has to be, right? Given the history, you move on from that. You become a best-selling author. <laughs> Random, right? It's very cool. Did you think about that when you were in the military? I think I had the idea that I might like to try writing these stories. One of the first times I read a Tom Clancy novel way back in the day, it just blew me away the way he was able to weave these separate, interesting storylines together. And they, they just sort of come together toward the end. And they all, you see the way all the different parts lock perfectly in. And it was uh, like, it was a religious experience, but I put that away. Uh, I was young, went off and had a career. And then at the end, my last assignment in the Air Force, I wasn't flying. I was driving and flying all across the country, going to meetings. And so I wanted something to do rather than sit at the hotel bar and drink. <laughs> so, yeah. so I started writing in my free time from there. Shit, and, I got to start um, writing? <laughs> no, no, you're still at the bar. Okay, good. Still at the bar. I can, yeah, still, yeah. I can still just go to There's the bar. There's nothing wrong with the bar. I just retired from that game at yeah. the top of my game, and then I haven't looked back since on that particular game. But yeah. I wanted something that I could you know, that I could build. And I don't want to ruin it for you, but nothing's changed at the bar. It's still, <laughs> it's still, it's still it there. It seemed like a lot was changing in that uh, scene, really. No, it's just, you know, maybe some different alcohol. George Clooney's got a good tequila out. I think that's about it. Does he really? Yeah. Clooney now. I know yeah. the, uh, is it Ryan Reynolds? It's Ryan Reynolds, right? He's, he's got, got, a, good, he's got yeah. a good gin out. Avi yeah, aviation gin. or aviator gin. Yeah. Casamigos for Clooney. I mean, that guy needed a billion bucks, right? Oh, he did. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Prick. Dan Aykroyd's vodka is pretty good. The Crystal Skull. Is it? Is that the, Is that his? That's his. Oh, well, uh, that's on for tonight. That's a strange dude. I heard him on a, a podcast, and I was like, man, is he on something? He might be on something. Oh, 100%. With Dan Aykroyd, right? Dan Aykroyd, yeah. Why yeah, would yeah. you ask that question? I mean, yeah, I mean yeah. the answer is obvious. The answer is <laughs> yeah, yes. Yeah, I you're right. <laughs> Maybe most people just hide it a little better. I don't know. In your book, Characters aren't all good or all bad. There are many shades of gray in your book. And the Americans aren't always the good guys. No. Sometimes they're the really bad guys. Does that kind of reflect your real world view? American oil intense in Venezuela? or where? I'm working through my disillusionment in public in these books. Uh -huh. I was told I was doing one thing. And I was doing it with a lot of vigor and uh, we were risking life and limb. Every year we we're going to funerals for guys who died doing this kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. And later, it kind of became apparent that we were not really doing what they told us we were doing. We had, you know, there was shocking. Yeah. There was an ulterior motive with a lot of this stuff. And I, I think. No way. I know. It's so <laughs> weird. Guy was a believer. I believe the stuff they told me about freedom and justice and truth and all of that kind of stuff. Yeah, like, we still want to believe it, right? We do. Yeah. And I think every culture needs that. And I also think that, that every nation state lives in a real world. And if they can subjugate your country under a mountain of aid, debt, yeah. they'll freaking do it. If they can overthrow your regime and put some knucklehead in who says he'll, he'll follow your marching orders, they'll do it. You know, I think we had this, this moment. We could be this 
altruistic nation, a beacon of light, and we, we fell way short of that many times. I think we were really stuck in our good versus evil narrative. Yeah. I think a lot of that is, certainly a lot of that is religiously based. A lot of Americans are very, are deeply religious. That's definitely, I was raised in a, a religious family. And that's a theme, man, good people and evil people. And as soon as you brand somebody as an evil person, well, that gives you kind of license to do whatever you want. I think it's mostly about where were you born? Now, we get infected with different mind viruses. Like when you go to the Middle East, that Islam mind virus over there, that's a bugger for sure. But we're getting infected with some really caustic mind viruses over here. This hard left versus hard right thing that's happening. There's, there, there is no place for us in the middle. And believe me, bro, I tried. That middle of the road, you know, fiscal conservative, socially liberal, and it just doesn't exist. You can't win a primary. Basically, no, you can't. You can't politically. You can't win a primary. But this is interesting because we have hardcore, very active, red political friends. Uh-huh. We have hardcore, very active blue political friends, and we're friends with both of them. Isn't it interesting how this is totally, just totally opposite news? Yes, this this was shocking to me. I was working at our uh, fitness center, and for whatever reason, they have both the red cult and the blue they cult TV up next to each other yeah. and they were they happened to be running the same story at the same time the two opposing factions a totally different narrative with opposite op- not just different but opposite conclusions from the same story and that's when i was like oh geez this is we're screwed <laughs> we're screwed i applaud you for having yeah, as you call the red cult the blue cult in your home and i imagine that they can come to some kind of conversation where you don't see it in a bar or somewhere like it because they, they feel safe in your home I imagine you created a safe environment for them and they're able to talk. The problem is there aren't really that many safe environments, especially where they indicate a safe environment. Like this is a safe zone. Unless you say the wrong thing. That means it's a war zone. Exactly. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. That is the target. Don't ever go into a safe space that's been identified by either team. Your first book, Sam Jameson book, was uh, you introduced Brock. Brock's an interesting character. Yeah. Like, I mean, I don't think I don't think you'd want to fight Brock, but initially, you know, he's a fighter pilot with an incredibly hot girlfriend, hates the Pentagon bureaucracy, and is um his girlfriend's hung like a horse. <laughs> <laughs> is that true? Is that did did Andrew uh, It's read news to me. It's news to me. Andrew. Uh, I guess, I guess it's Brock that's doing well. I see. I see. So, I mean, is that based on real life? You know, obviously. <laughs> there you go. There you so. I mean, all the characters are a little bit autobiographical. A little bit. Right. A little bit. All right. Well, then we'll just move on, Brock. <laughs> uh, it's you, funny because sometimes people write in and they'll say, hey, are you meant to be Brock? And I'll just say, no comment. I do project a little bit. Yeah, I do. But to be fair, not many of us love the bureaucracy. Some of us do, but not many of us love the bureaucracy. I think um, there's a distinction between having a process that you follow so you don't screw things up unrecoverably. And I think there's a having, it's different than having a bureaucratic mentality where you do nothing but stir turds and call meetings and nothing gets advanced, nothing goes, goes beyond. Having an institution that, that has bureaucratic practices attracts the kind of people who are okay with living inside of a bureaucracy and doing bureaucratic things and never really being on the hook to produce anything. Writing these books and being creative and, and having this, this really well thought out view of the world, view of politics, view of economics, and then you're just like, you know what? It's not challenging enough. I'm going to get into Bitcoin. Where does that come from? It's really interesting. It's sort of the same thing. I'm, I'm interested in the way things really work. And once I started noting, once I had that big wake up, what they're telling me might not be 100% truthful. Mm-hmm. And what they say I'm doing and working for might not be 100% what I'm actually busy doing. There's some discrepancy between the way things are presented and the way that they actually function. And so I got really interested in, uh, less interested in the reds versus blues kind of thing. I was much more interested in the relationship of the individual to the state and vice versa. 
And one of the important questions I started wrestling with is like, what is value and how do you store it? And this of course leads right into what is money and how does money work? That's a bit of an education also. Yeah, educate me. How does money work? Because I've just, at $31 trillion in debt, I'm just at a loss. For, for, <laughs> well, I, I think it works because we decide we need money. Yeah. We decide we need some medium of exchange. I think what happens in a fiat kind of currency scenario is that over some amount of time, it's just too tempting to print, if you're a government, to print your way into whatever programs you're interested in pursuing, whatever wars you're in interested in prosecuting. And it's happened over and over again. I think so, yes. I, th I mean, I think there's some debate on the subject. Did, did every fiat currency fail or was it subsumed or conquered or whatever? There's certainly some genius in the way that money can be conjured out of thin air in the form of debt. Like it's a really efficient way to organize human energy. It's not a completely farcical, idiotic thing if you are restrained. But we're not restrained. <laughs> we're not. Something will happen like a COVID where you got to print a, you think you need to print a trillion dollars a month. It's hard for the rest of us to continue pretending that each of these things has the same value as it had yesterday when you've introduced a hundred billion more of them in the, in the interim. Or seven trillion more of them. Or seven trillion, for example. Yeah, so there's this weird, hard cognitive dissonance that eventually the contract, the agreement breaks. Like, I don't want to take your dollars because I don't know what they'll be worth tomorrow. And then, of course, when that happens, you need to spend all your money today to buy stuff you know you'll need tomorrow, but might not be able to afford tomorrow. Noticeable inflation in prices drives inflationary human behavior, mm. which pushes more inflationary price action and all the above. So all this became really fascinating to me. And so what's the fundamental, what's the fundamental lever that if we stop pulling it, we'd be less likely to wind up in these situations where entire economies collapse. I think it's on the supply side of money. Agreed. That's where I got really interested in Bitcoin because it is scarce and it's scarce because there's over a million computers on the, on the globe who all agree that you can't just make more of it. You could say, I now have a million Bitcoin, but the other million computers on the planet would say, no, you don't. You just don't. You don't have it. So it's really hard just to fake it. It's really hard just to print it. It's enforced scarcity because we're all watching. Everybody's watching. Nobody can go into a closed room and come out with a million more Bitcoin. It just doesn't work like that. So that's why I got interested in it, because it seemed to solve it. It had the scarcity of gold, but, but you can spend it and you can walk around with it. I mean, you can store it far more easily. You can actually uh, transact with it. So it seemed to me like this is potentially, it's definitely an experiment worth pursuing. Mm -hmm. And it's potentially a solution that can help a lot of ills. And ruin our country. Is it ruin our country? I mean, if fiat currency isn't worth, worth anything, what does that do to the dollar? I mean, what does it do to the United States? Because our currency right now is valued on I don't know, the faith and credit of the United States. It's not, it's not based on gold. The bedrock of the dollar is the full faith and credit of yeah. the United States. But then we print a trillion dollars a month yeah. for some period of time. We give that away. Like That is given away. It's gone. That's not coming back. We, we've already overprinted to some extent, right? That's, we can't undo that. So we've, we've subverted our, our faith and credit. I don't think that the dollar will run into trouble because of Bitcoin. I think that the dollar will run into trouble because of the way the dollar has been managed. There's a lot of money in the United States going into Bitcoin to kind of further that experiment. We're involved in the experiment and don't try to close our eyes or close our borders to it, we'll be fine. I think if we try to strong arm it, if we try to build a wall like China is building, trying to keep Bitcoin out, I think that guarantees a couple century of marginalization. The biggest threat to the dollar is obviously our stewardship has been objectively That's a good awful. Word. I like that word, yeah. Objectively awful. Also having an alternative that is attractive for all the reasons and many more that you mentioned about Bitcoin is a threat. And I'm only speaking like putting myself in the Fed shoes. Yeah. That like, hey, you know, faith and credit at $31 trillion and uh, nobody believes, really believes that tomorrow if we didn't have some 
minor catastrophe, we wouldn't print more money. And Bitcoin being an alternative, I think the government sees it as a threat. I mean, China obviously does. What do you think happens if that comes to a head? What it threatens is the government's ability to print its, its agenda and to, to sustain itself by printing. It absolutely is a threat. But I think there are, and certain, there will be efforts. There will be efforts to stamp it out. There might even be United States efforts to stamp it out. I think, though, there's enough signal, like bilateral petroleum agreements, where every petroleum transaction doesn't have to settle in the dollar anymore because some countries are agreeing just to do business one-on-one. It was a very bad single that it doesn't have to settle in the dollar anymore. Yeah, I think it was, a, um, it was more a recognition that American dollar stewardship was not what it needed to be and less a, a you know, a less an aggressive action. I think, peop- I think countries have been quietly buying gold for a long time. You guys know more about this than me for sure. I oh, think- Don't um, bet on it. Go ahead. <laughs> I think it's not that uh, rub America's face in it. I think it was more a defensive move that I'm not sure how many more dollars you guys are going to be able to print before the whole world turns their back on your currency. So we need to have alternate arrangements to keep, keep the oil flowing. It seemed a little political in its timing to me with China getting a lot of flack for aligning with Russia yeah. uh, on the Ukraine issue. And then that whole agreement with our, our best friends in the world, Saudi Arabia, who've never been anything but like <laughs> great to us. Yeah. Yeah. How could you not love them? They're just go, go live there for months on in the middle of the freaking desert for months on end. And, and, and you know, and, Oh, bro, you, know, you didn't leave the base, right? We were not allowed. Yeah, they didn't want yeah. to see our, our infidel ass wandering around. No, it just seemed political to me. And it was a very bad sign. And I was, I was sorry to see that that hit about one or two news cycles and everybody moved on. Because that's really crucially, critically important, yeah. but not interesting. Yeah. What's more interesting is what bombastic thing the clown said or the cadaver said, right? Whichever, whichever side you're on. Well, I'll take the clown. Cadaver doesn't sound good. No. Yeah, he's he's an cheap, office cheap now. gas. Yeah, oh, isn't he? That's my uh, weekend at Bernie's. Oh, th- there you go, Joe Biden. I got you. You've got Trump as a clown and uh, Biden, Biden as a cadaver. cadaver. Yeah, I don't like either of them. No, I think we could do better, people. Three hundred thirty million of us, and we got those. It was down to those two for president. I'd vote for Lars Emmerich in a second. I mean, this guy is—I <laughs> wouldn't is, run. He no was way. wildly interesting, thoughtful, articulate. I don't even care. It's not his real name. <laughs> I would do it anyway. And you already like know I'm hiding something, right? Yeah, exactly. I'm using a fake name. How involved are you in Bitcoin? I mined it for a good period of time before you mined it, became, it. Yeah, I was a miner uh, for a good bit of time. Okay, well, that's 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 a bit further than most people. I've been interested in it since maybe 2012, and uh, involved in it in, as as a miner and investor since 20 I think 13. Wow. Watch it with interest. Again, it was, for me, it wasn't if I put dollars into this now, at some point in the future, I'm likely to take more dollars out, although that's exactly what happened. It's a little crazy where things have gone. But uh, yeah, hopefully you I, took my interest in 60,000. That, that would have been smart. But we did for, you know, for a couple of reasons. But um, I, I was always in it because I, th- I thought it's a really, really interesting experiment that could fundamentally change the way the nation state relates to the human, to the individual. It reduces the exploitative powers that governments have if it's successful, if it becomes a reserve currency. And uh, I think it's a way to, to get two or three billion people who are economically marginalized to marshal their energy productively. Some of that can get to be Pollyanna. There's a, I mean, there's a, there are a lot of hurdles between here and that kind of situation. But at least... 12 old people can't go into a room, shut the doors, and come out with a trillion more dollars. You have a very articulate take on why you'd want to have Bitcoin. It's interesting you're a miner. A lot of people are like, listen, I have Bitcoin for the same reason I have a shit bucket in my underground shelter, <laughs> just in case. Oh, sure, there's some of that. I took my tin hat off prior, but I, I do I mean, I, I do think we ought to be taking steps to prepare ourselves for when weird things happen, because weird things always happen. Weird things have been happening more and more pretty big weird things. I mean, you can get into like bigger riots, bigger pandemics. I mean, China's had the last three or four and it was just a matter of time before one's going to get over here. And Mm. you can just think about, you know, how that tests a population and a resilience. And uh, you would know that our enemies were watching how we handled this as a people. I don't have a shit bucket. 
I don't make fun of those people as much as I used to. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I do understand the Bitcoin thing. I mean, the mining thing is, I mean, you just really go 360 on, on the things you do. Did you ever mine a coin yourself? Did you ever get one? The way mining typically works is via a pool. So yeah. the probability that anyone... You used a pool miner or did you do it yourself? I did both. Okay. But when I was doing it myself, I pooled my hash power in. So you get incremental returns because you're grouped with a large number of, of machines pulling you know, a bunch of terahashes every, every whatever. Right. And somebody in this large pool, statistically speaking, much more likely to find uh, a solution mm-hmm. and get a block reward of mm-hmm. more Bitcoin than, than you would running your one machine for X number of and years. And you're all splitting it up. And, we, and you all split it up. Yeah. Right. So from the word go, as soon as I got the, the box up and running, I did a deal where it was uh, hosted for a while and then I self-hosted. So I, I ran the box, put the fans on it, did all yeah. the things and just linked into the, into the pool for mining. What do you think so, of the liquid-cooled machines now coming out? Is that worth it? And ironically, China puts a stop to it, but they're the only ones producing the machines. This is a really interesting thing. I think it was a really telling little episode when China says, no more mining, out the door, get everybody out. People thought, gosh, what does this mean for Bitcoin? There was certainly, some, there was certainly a bit of price action because markets yeah, are yeah, yeah. markets. But the network just kept on ticking. It didn't care. So there's something to this distributed and especially distributed across a large number of political borders where when somebody loses their shit for a minute, the rest of the world is unlikely to do the same. I thought unlikely. Now watching the whole pandemic thing happen, I'm not entirely sure that we won't all just jump off the same bridge together, (laughs) but but I think the odds are lower when everybody on the planet, like almost all the places where there's power, they're represented by either nodes or miners in many cases. So it's just hard to get all of those people and from so many different walks of life locked into the same mind virus to do the same stupid thing. It's unlikely to happen, whereas it's more likely to happen inside the borders of one country. So that was a really interesting data point for me watching this whole thing happen. Sure, the price fluctuated because it's, a, you know, it's, it's traded in, it settles in dollars when you buy some or sell some. That's, that's a market thing. I don't think you should if you're thinking about Bitcoin, I think you should look at it from a fundamental standpoint and not necessarily from a short-term kind of play. I think, what's the utility in it? What's the use case? Well, you can move millions of dollars in five minutes all over the earth. It doesn't matter where you are, you can move it. Now, you're not laundering any money that way because every transaction is permanent and public. So everybody can see everything that's happening on the chain. So it's not like, I mean, it's much harder to launder money with Bitcoin than it ever was to launder money with the US dollar. Well, I mean, I think our government has found a way to find the people that were doing the laundering of money with Bitcoin. So right. that fallacy with that, that's where you go. People try it. I'm pretty sure the people who like shut down that food supply thing this last summer or the summer before, I think they're caught, um, hopefully mm-hmm. executed. But anyway, really hard to hide. It, it really it is. is. I mean, what do you think as an investment of the Bitcoin mining companies listed on our exchanges? That's the reason I'm not a miner now. Yeah. It's because mining goes where power is cheap. Yeah. Are you saying power is not cheap, is cheap here in the United States? <laughs> <laughs> it was. Not where I live. Not, I mean, it was cheap enough back in the day when there, there wasn't that much hashing power on the Bitcoin network. Now, you've got to throw a lot of electrons at it. Yeah, and and we've got a halving coming up, right? So that's going to be... That'll be interesting. be really hard, and you're going to need a lot of power sucking from the grid. Yeah, it seems like if you make any money in it, you have to move to Puerto Rico. So there's that. <laughs> I think that's a rule. <laughs> it is. I think that might just be the uh, like that's in the in the cult hymnal. So when you're in the Bitcoin cult, you're like, ah, you're not a real baller until you move to Puerto Rico or something. Right. right. <laughs> Where's that spot they have there? Dorado, I guess, is where it's at. I mean, like, yeah, something like that. All the people living there, like, you know, fucking Bitcoin miners, man. They just, <laughs> yeah. they just bought up that whole beach. Yeah. You know, it's tax advantage as well, but this is a problem. Is it not for Bitcoining and, and the, uh, for, for mining and in the future? What's that? Power? Certainly power is a consideration. Absolutely. It's not the way that it has been portrayed. It's um, actually very well suited to work hand in hand with the power industry. You have to size your power plants for maximum capacity or for peak capacity plus a margin. 
and it almost never operates at or near that capacity. From that standpoint, the carbon footprint is not exactly what, what it's made out to be by opponents. And the other thing to think about is this empowering this network removes all third-party risk from every transaction that you make. So you don't have to trust the building full of bankers who might all be corrupt in your neck of the woods, you know, depending on where you live. You don't have counterparty risk. You don't have somebody inserting themselves between two sides of a transaction uh, who are, it's not that they are necessarily unscrupulous to begin with, but there's no bank in the world that's going to stand up to the sovereign nation it, it works in telling them which accounts to freeze and which assets to see. So it's not that they function as an arm of the political entity, but when push comes to shove, the banks will, they just don't have any option, but to do exactly what Canada did to those people who <laughs> donated 50 bucks to the truckers or whatever. Ugh. So the third party risk, that's a big deal. It's a really big deal. And I think right now it's 0.5% of the energy production is used on the planet for securing the Bitcoin network. Man, there's far worse shit we're using that power for <laughs> than to secure the transaction. So I think that we're paying that cost in other ways already by having buildings full of third-party intermediaries the transactions i think we're also paying a tax in terms of if you want to start a war nobody ever saves up a trillion dollars and goes to war people just go to war and then print up yeah. the money to pay for it so and wars are exceptionally expensive you know yeah. let alone how much you spend to conduct them all the stuff you break when you go to war someplace it's just astronomically expensive. So that's, that'll be much harder to do if you can't just print up a war. So I think it's, it's better to look at it in terms of certainly, you know, there's some energy that we're using. What's the alternative? War is the alternative. We can just keep going to war. It's one option. <laughs> that seems to be that we're trucking with for the last couple thousand years anyway. You think Bitcoin's here to stay? Continue to invest in it? I do definitely invest in it. I don't, I'm careful not to make any conclusions about what it will become. What I think it could become means that it's worth continuing this experiment in good faith and with lots of effort just to see where it goes. It might be that it, it does create some dystopian wasteland that we're, you know, we're just not seeing right now. But it might also be that a lot of this good does come about. So I think we just keep marching forward with this experiment, see where it leads. All right. All our listeners are going to want to know one last question, which means there's probably two or three. But who, who owns Tether? I don't know. Yeah, me neither. Neither does government. Uh, Nobody knows. Nobody knows. I don't, uh, yeah. if, if I'm a central bank, I'm pretty worried about Tether. Yeah. If I'm a central bank, I also really, really want a central bank digital currency because then I get my hands into everybody's pocket. I control everything and everybody. I see every transaction. I can tell people what they can and can't spend on. Mm -hmm. I can, so we need, no matter what you think about where crypto is going or not going, I think we all really need to resist getting the central banks involved in uh, a blockchain based currency where they are in every private individual's wallet. No Capital chance. controls Zero. will take on a totally different meaning. Zero chance we're going to stop that. Sorry. I mean, I'm with you. I'm 100% with you. But China's already on it doing it and, and nobody's going to say no. And the United States has started it as well. There's just one way they're going to get it done here in the United States. And they're just going to keep pounding how we're making your life more convenient. And that's all we need, right? you know, sure. to just give Absolutely. everything up, to give yep. all our rights up. They're going to make it, they're going to make it convenient. Just click the, I agree button. Doesn't matter what comes up on the screen yep. before that. Yep. Don't even scroll through it. Just click it. Yeah. I, I'm with you. It's worrisome. You're a wildly entertaining guy. I'd love to talk to you again in the future as a returning champion, whether it's, you know. <laughs> That's right. Champion of what? <laughs> a, a champion of the show. There you go. I'm honored. I'm going to encourage you to listen to one or two of them. I mean, for Pete's sake, man. And then you'd be a returning champion. You should. Uh, I will do that. You know, we had a general on a couple of weeks ago, and, you know, it was a great show talking about how an old technology, you know, warthog could have taken out that whole column of tanks 100 miles long in Russia. Yeah which is ridiculous and fun. I mean, I think we'd like to talk about Bitcoin as it goes. I think Bitcoin's kind of here to stay. I, that's just my opinion. I don't have a lot of it. I don't invest in a lot of it. I know that from the last five or six years when banks were telling us that Bitcoin is a fad and nothing and a fraud, they had a whole department working on it in their bank. Yeah. Who's really the fraud? Well, you know, 
That's rhetorical. <laughs> Not to put too fine a point on it. Now the SEC's kind of just taken control of it when, I mean, there was one of 10 different agencies in the United States that thought they were maybe the regulator for Bitcoin, uh, the SEC's writing rules. So, you know, we'll see. We'd like to talk to you about that as it grows. And, you know, maybe your next book. Uh, read more than one, see where it goes This uh, with this big dick fighter pilot. Only if it's your thing. You know, don't suffer on my account. No. I'm, a, I'm an acquired taste, my wife says. T- totally. Reading is my thing. I do it all the time. I do it too much. You know what? You know what I don't want to read? A 10K. I, I had heard from Andrew that you kind of downplay the selling of your books. You're just like, yeah, buy it if you want. Don't buy it if you don't want. No, lean into that shit, man. I mean, you sold over a million of them. You're not bad at this. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks. What else can you tell us? Uh, where can uh, people follow you, uh, see you? Lars.buzz, L-A-R-S dot B-U-Z-Z. That's the best way to jump into the world. Whatever, whatever special I'm running at the moment, that's the best place to find it. So Lars, L-A-R-S dot B-U-Z-Z. Well, I'm seeing it now. Lars underscore Emmerich in Twitter. It's pretty big on Facebook. Mm-hmm. And then you said Lars.buzz. Uh, and you're pretty big on Facebook, huh? I do a lot of advertising. I give Zuckerberg a lot of money. I hate that guy. Facebook. What are you doing? I heard him on Rogan. I was pleasantly surprised. You know, Rogan can make anybody look good or bad. I love Rogan. He's, yeah. he's the best. Zuckerberg's had a lot of chances. You know, and if he got one interview right, he's not, he's not winning me over. That's right. We got to remember, though, like, this is a nerd. And so we, nerds, we're, we're challenged in some ways. So, when, you know, we're not going to have, we're not always going to shine. Don't throw that <laughs> wee shit at me, pal. You're a fighter pilot. <laughs> That's that. I'm that too. Yeah. Yeah. You're, you're also a great guest. So everybody, uh, you know, follow Lars at, Read his book, even if he doesn't want you to, and hit him up (laughs) on Bitcoin. He likes talking about it. Thanks for joining us on the show, and uh, we look forward to uh, following your career in earnest. Thank you, sir. It was a pleasure to be here. I really appreciate it.